Dr. Carl Hart is the author of Drug Use for Grownups, and he has probably one of the most controversial stances for the legalization of all drugs that is out in the mainstream narrative. And he puts forth a very interesting case. Now, believe it or not, agree with it or not, I think it's important to explore these different ideas that extend beyond the traditional ideas of psychedelic medicine legalization, but extends to the entirety of drug use and really points to an idea of what is someone's right to a sovereign choice to alter their consciousness. Now, this is a very interesting podcast, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you and hearing your feedback about what you think of Dr. Carl Hart's ideas and also his own personal stories from his own experiences in this field that he is particularly interested in talking about. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have NutriSense. My first exposure to a device called a constant glucose monitor came from Ben Greenfield and Kyle Kingsbury, who had this thing attached to their arm, and it was actually measuring in real time how their body responded to different foods and whether those foods were actually spiking their blood sugar. And it really gave them a keen insight to what foods interacted with their system in a particular way that they could actually guide their own metabolic health with some accurate information. Think of it like what an aura ring or a whoop watch can do for your sleep or maybe even your exercise, although you're awake for your exercise. So I really think it's more importantly helpful for those things that are hidden. Now, a constant glucose monitor will do that for you so you understand the type of foods, the type of meals that are affecting your metabolic health, which affects everything else, your sleep, your stress, your ability to perform, your exercise capacity, all of these things are very much related to your metabolic system. NutriSense makes this process super easy. Putting on a constant glucose monitor, it's painless. It also has a great app which allows you to track your data, track your meals, give yourself scores. It's really giving you the best insight to what's happening on the hidden insides of your own body. So go to NutriSense.io slash Aubrey and use the code Aubrey for $30 off any subscription to a CGM product. Once again, Nutrisense.io slash Aubrey, code Aubrey for $30 off a subscription to a constant glucose monitor program. Next up, we have Inside Tracker. So as many of you know, I founded a company called Onnit based upon total human optimization. And so many of the tools that we have are beneficial to bring you to an optimal state of performance. But one of the challenges with that is sometimes you need quantification. Sometimes you need to understand what specifically you need to work on. And to do that, you need some support. And one of the best services to come about is called Inside Tracker. Our good friend Andrew Huberman backs them and supports them. They really go through a comprehensive analysis of not only your blood work but your lifestyle and everything that's going on to give you a clear view and some recommendations on how to bring you to an optimal state of performance so i encourage you guys to check it out it was founded by a bunch of top leading scientists in aging genetics biometrics they have algorithms that analyze your body's data there's some really strong science back recommendations for your diet lifestyle changes it's really customized, bespoke advice, and can be really valuable. So if you're interested, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com backslash AMP. Once again, insidetracker.com slash AMP for 25% off. And lastly, we have Onnit. This podcast, like every other one, is brought to you by Onnit alpha brain black label now it's brought to you by on alpha brain black label one because this was the company that i helped create and a formula which i worked with some of the top experts in the world to build which has become the flagship nootropic all across the country and many parts of the world but it's also brought to you by it because i take it every single time i do a podcast i don't miss a podcast without taking black label now, it used to be Alpha Brain back in the day, but since Black Label came on the market, 
it just provides this crystalline focus where I'm able to drop in, really connect with the guests, have access to information, stories, words. It creates this kind of flow state. And whether I'm writing or podcasting or reading, taking notes, whatever I'm doing, Alpha Brain Black Label is my ride or die homie. So if you're interested in checking it out, go to onit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off Alpha Brain Black Label and all other Onit supplements and products. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Carl Hart. Dr. Carl Hart, thanks for coming in. Glad to be here, man. So I want you to fast forward to a time where you're a grandfather. And I don't know what your family is. I'm a grandfather now. You're a grandfather now? Yeah. All right. Well, further into your (laughs) grandfatherdom, further into your grandfatherdom. And I want you to imagine your grandchildren, maybe a grandson, a granddaughter, maybe a great-grandson, great-granddaughter saying, Grandpa, tell us about when they used to throw people in cages for putting things in their body. What was that like? And you have to explain to them what's going on in the world and what's been going on in the world where people don't have the sovereignty of their own consciousness. Well, I, I don't I don't think that's going to be a time in my lifetime. You know, it, there's just too much money in uh, putting people in cages. I mean, there's just too much money to be made. And um, that's why it continues. And so I, I, I'll be, I, I, you know, so I, I can't deal with that fantasy because it ain't going to happen. Really? You don't yeah. think there'll be a time? when we'll just look back at all of this nonsense where somebody else gets to tell another person what to do with themselves and say, what the fuck were we thinking? And then this let's whole, think, whole revolution will come. Let's think about where we're at. Yeah. We're in, we're in Vegas at the Meet Delic conference mm-hmm. and there's this focus on psychedelics kind of thing. And the people here have forgotten about people who use heroin, people who use cocaine, and they don't advocate on behalf of those kind of people, in part because um, we use what you put in your body as a way to uh, discriminate, uh, to separate. Um, And so until people who are in places like this are advocating on behalf of people who are using methamphetamine, who are using heroin, it ain't going to happen. And I don't, even in this moment, we haven't done that. Mm. And so uh, it's frustrating to somebody like me um, because, like you said, it's what you put in your body. Um, long as you're not bothering anybody, why do we care? Right. Uh, we have very good laws that prevent people from hurting other people. Exactly. I They're agree. very good. You drive intoxicated, you're increasing the risk of hurting somebody. There's very good laws that say, you know, you can go to jail for that. And I think that's reasonable. You know, I'm, you're I'm putting you. people at risk. If you hurt somebody, if you accost somebody, if you do anything else to somebody, those laws are good. Keep them. Good job. Good job, legal system. However, when it's you and your own body and your own consciousness, what the fuck does anybody else have to say about that? I'm with you. Um, you know, uh, just think about the, uh, the articles that are written today the TV programs, the movies. Uh, on the one hand, we separate certain drugs. Like, it's okay to take plant medicine. But mm-hmm. if you use heroin, you know, uh, you're a bad person. Or if you even sell heroin or what have you, you're a bad person. And none of us in our society are saying, wait a second, this is the same thing. Um, and so until we get better at that, I'm not really um, as optimistic well, there's a, there's a bias about the potential benefit, quote, of, of a certain thing, right? And we would put a hierarchy. Even within psychedelics, there's a hierarchy. If Absolutely. you take psychedelics just for fun, let's say you just say, oh, yeah, I love taking mushrooms and laughing my ass off with my friends. People are like, oh, no, 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 that's not the right way. I trained with these people down in Mexico, and I know the proper way to do a mushroom ceremony. It's not just to sit around and laugh at your friends. It's very fucking serious. And some people will say, like, that's the way to take mushrooms in the other way. And they're just different purposes for the same thing. But even within the community, there's this big like gap between what people say is good and what people say is not good. No, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, it's an artificial distinction because 
it's really difficult to disentangle like pleasure, fun from healing or whatever. Um, but we we use it, we do that with our language. We dis- disentangle it, but really. People are typically seeking the same thing. They may have different ways of expressing it, uh, but they're altering their consciousness. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, that's why we hear terms like plant medicine uh, versus something like a drug for fun. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's all designed to separate, discriminate. Duncan Trussell was talking yesterday on the podcast we did on stage. He said there's like a war on hedonism. Like there's a war on the desire for pleasure as if the desire for pleasure is something evil, bad, not good, whereas the desire for something productive, some higher virtue, you know, that's that's what's good. And it was very interesting to hear him talk about that because really when you boil it down, what, what are we here for? We're here to have the most enjoyable life we can and to help everybody and maybe every other being have the most enjoyable life. That's what I believe at least. So like, how are you gonna denigrate someone who's having enjoying their life if they're not hurting anybody else's life, it, it's it's very interesting how we just accept this whole structure. Well, that's what uh, Puritanism is all about. What you just described, yeah, right? It's a, there's religious roots to it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's this country, absolutely. Um, so there's this sort of equating uh, suffering with. Uh, being virtuous Mm. Um, um, and that's part of what uh, happened with our religion in this country and well you know I wrote about this in the book I'm just trying to help people to understand that pleasure is a good thing Uh, Mm. if you feel better uh, you may treat other people better or you increase the likelihood that you will treat other people better Um, uh, but to have to say pleasure is a good thing that's a bizarre concept yeah the uh, <clears throat> I heard it explained by uh, Matthias De Stefano. Actually, he was talking about how the Semitic religions, all the desert religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, they came from a place where the sun was incredibly hot and punishing. And people always tend to equate what? Where's God? God's up. God is the light. God is the sun. Sun and God have been equated in our minds subconsciously, if not consciously, in many cultures. And because God was so dangerously punishing and hot and you had this you suffered when it was out there but it was also necessary for you they really created this god that was going to be this very kind of punishing and not not loving nurturing god like you find in other different climates like in the rainforest where they worship the mother and it's like this plentiful bountiful thing and the sun is the lovely father that pierces through the trees and warms up your face and it's this whole different idea but it was interesting to go back to what he was you know surmising was the biological impetus for the way that we actually view god and then how now we're talking how that translates down to now like god is this punishing force that wants us to suffer just like the sun wants you to suffer when you're in the middle of the fucking desert you know i'm i don't really know much about the religion thing uh, i was brought up in the church and frankly um it's not one of my favorite subjects because of the mythologies that people promote related to it in order to control other people and um this notion that the sun and that that's somebody's theory i don't i don't right i don't Kind of makes sense, though, right? Like not to me. Not uh, to you? <laughs> no. Uh, you, you know, you can make up anything. That's what we do with religion. And so it's the right. same thing. And I don't really... Well, it doesn't make sense that that's an actual... That's the actual God. But I think it makes sense to me that that's what people... I think people project their own values and their own beliefs onto their deities in an well, interesting way. You know, We have a lot of sort of cultural mechanisms to help you project certain things in this society. And so... Um, yeah, uh, we can make people think and believe a lot of these things, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that's what we do. And I, uh, I, so I don't really have much to say about religion. Yeah, it, yeah, it's no not doubt. my type of hype. Uh, I've been uh, brutalized by religion too much. <laughs> I think a lot of people have. I think a lot of people have. And uh, I think that's you know also part of rewriting because it's such a strong influence. It's kind of unlearning and and rewriting some of these deep subliminal codes like the codes like the like the war against pleasure understanding where its roots are where it's where it's got strings tethered to and that's what makes it kind of interesting for me in this case let's be clear i think people who are in charge they certainly have pleasure 
and they have pleasure in their way, uh, but they don't trust certain other people in a society to have pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the real problem as I see it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it, it's, it's certain types of people can have pleasure. Um, and we're in Vegas. Uh, uh, we say it's okay for Americans to come here and do certain things, but you can't do this in the state right next door. Uh, and so we have this space for certain people to do this. Right. Or if you're elite, uh, those rules don't apply to you. Uh, and so I, I think that um, uh, we, uh, we understand and value pleasure, but we, it's just that for certain people, uh, we don't think they deserve that pleasure. Right, like rules rules for thee, but not for me. Exactly. And this is this kind of top-down exactly. hierarchical yeah. structure that we have. Exactly. I mean, you can think about, um, um, I, I don't know, I, I remember uh, people like William Bennett. He was the first drug czar um, under um, Bush 1. Um drank alcohol a lot, but then he was just drug uh, uh, warrior. Mm. Um, you can't do those other drugs. It's like, you're intoxicated, uh, but yet you don't want other people to be intoxicated. It's So that's the kind of thing that's going on. Right. What do you say when people challenge some of your beliefs, which, you know, promote full-scale decriminalization and people point to the to these type of drugs that are very sticky for people to get addicted to, very sticky for people to develop bad habits about. And and those are the things that I think people have the hardest time. It's just almost like they feel that, well, fuck. It's like, I get it, and I'm for decriminalization, but if you start to get down that path, it's so hard to extricate yourself. So maybe we do need to insulate people, and this is this kind of belief that I think a lot of people have. Even if you go to meet Delic, you know, which you're going to go to and speak to today, a lot of people have this belief, like, man, like, yeah, I like my heart's for it, but I'm just scared of these ones because they feel sticky. They feel like they're a slippery slope to addiction. Uh, Well, I guess I would have to notice specific criticism because, I mean, if we start, if we take something like heroin or... Yeah, let's go down. Let's go down. Let's talk about the big ones that people are worried about. Heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine. Sure. Sure. So if we think about heroin, uh, most of the people who use heroin are not addicted, right? Um, The vast majority of people, maybe a quarter uh, at most, 30% will become addicted to heroin. I mean, that's an important number, of course. But addiction doesn't have much to do with the substance itself. You know, like if you take alcohol every day uh, for, I don't know, months, uh, and then you abruptly discontinue, you run the risk of dying from over, uh, from a withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whereas with heroin, you do that sort of thing. You will be you may, you'll have some withdrawal, but you won't. You don't have to worry about dying unless you have some poor other health related issue. Um, and so I think uh, there are so many mythologies around the addiction potential of all of these substances mm-hmm. or the role that the drug plays in addiction. You know, addiction has everything to do with the person and their environment and less to do with the drug. Um, and we know this in science. We don't say this in part because there's a lot of money uh, in um, having people believe these mythologies. I mean, money in research, uh, there are money in these treatment sort of places that really don't deal with the issues, people's issues. Like, yeah, people get addicted to methadone and just as much as they get addicted to the to the thing they're trying to get well, freedom from, right? Let's 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 define addiction. We should take a step back. So I uh, I know people say that, but that's not uh, methadone works for a number of people even if they have to take it uh, every day for the rest of their life. Um, it, it still works. I mean, I think about my mom who has to take hypertension med- medication or mm-hmm. insulin every day. Uh, will we say she's addicted to those kind of things? I don't think so. It helps mm-hmm. her uh, live a better life. So same way with methadone for some people. When I use the term addiction, I mean um, uh, people have psychosocial disruptions They're uh, as a result of their drug use. Mm-hmm. They're not going to work and they want to go to work. Uh, they're not interacting with their loved ones in a way that they want to and they are disturbed by it. They are distressed by that. That's what I mean when I say addiction. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody's taking methadone 
every day um, and they are happy with their life, that's not addiction. That's not how we define addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so, when, but, so when I think about heroin, heroin is a medication that's used in Europe treat pain. Mm -hmm. um, it's also used for people who uh, met criteria for heroin addiction at some point in their life. And they take heroin every day um, provided by the state. And they are happier. They're working. Um, uh, they have housing. Uh, wide range of beneficial effects happen. Um, Is that happening in Vancouver where they're offering heroin to people who yeah they have a small program yeah, in, in program. vancouver um on the sort of like a research protocol um but in places like switzerland places like the netherlands even in some places in germany um they do this kind of thing and, and they have a larger sort of um uh, a, a larger scale clinics um so what we believe about heroin addiction uh, I, I think it's mostly fairy fairy tale. Now, that's not to say that people don't struggle, because people do struggle. Um, a lot of people struggle. Uh, well, some of the people who struggle um, oftentimes blame heroin and not even look at their life. And, mm -hmm. and so at some point, you don't want to blame the person who's actually who's experiencing these problems. And so as a result, we kind of blame the substance. Mm. Um, you don't have to necessarily blame the person without blaming the substance. You can look at their life. You know, people uh, having a hard time with employment, housing, all of these things. Um, also, they could, sometimes they're immature. We all make mistakes when we're younger. Um, that's a normal sort of developmental trajectory. Um, uh, so all of these normal things that happens in people's lives, uh, if they happen to take heroin, it's just easier to blame mm -hmm. heroin or methamphetamine or some other drug as opposed to looking at the complete person. Uh, and that's what we've done. Um, yeah. Intellectually lazy. That's yeah. It's, it's like we pathologize a certain condition, which then makes the person completely exculpable, completely free of any responsibility for anything that's going on in their life. Oh, alcoholism runs in my family. And I'm not saying that it exactly. doesn't. And I'm not saying that these things aren't true. But when you label it as such, then you kind of rob the person of the sovereignty of choice that we all have as a superpower. Like we're all able to do far more than what the authorities tell us we're capable of doing because there's a dollar sign at pathologizing anything. There's a treatment, there, there's a treatment, there's a, a another different kind of thing that you can charge them for. There's And there's also the, the comfort that the person has that says, oh shit, this isn't my fault. I got, you know, I got this thing and and I don't have to worry about looking at my life and making those like, open-eyed hard you know examinations of relationships and choices and feelings and your self-love protocols and whatever it else might be you know absolutely you hit it on the head um you know and and one of the sort of consequences of that is i think about people who are suffering uh, chronic pain issues uh, they can now no longer get opioids because of the hysteria around opioids and heroin in this country so physicians are uh, reluctant to prescribe opioids because uh, they may be looked at as a pill mill or something and so meanwhile these people are suffering who have chronic pain and they may have been maintained on opioids for years and happily maintained. Um, and so um, when we see movies, when we see, when we read newspaper articles vilifying opioids, we don't think about those kind of consequences. Mm. You know, this is, yeah, everywhere you look, it's the opioid crisis. And even I'll say that I haven't even examined that, you know, at the, but at the same time, homie has you know homie has some pain pills and they run out and they're like i'm like i'll fucking take one of those you know it's a little bit hypocritical for me because i've i've had a, a whatever a tylenol codeine i mean like yeah it's fucking hella relaxing that's kind of nice and i don't i don't have issues with my compulsion to continue to do it but i've had it and it's been like yeah that felt that felt good that was a nice evening that i had um but at the same time i'll look at I'll look at it and be like, oh yeah, yeah, opioid crisis. Like, and and I understand lots of people are dying, and so there are facts that are that are absolutely. But that's true. separate. That's different from what you're talking about. Like the the reason why people are dying are not because of opioids. 
that's what people are saying yeah so so let's yeah. let's like let's help let's help people like me yeah. who just accepted that at face value just take another fresh look and be like okay what's going on here yeah um i think i read somewhere recently i think the number was like ninety thousand people die from overdoses in the past year or something and that's the preliminary number and then but when you actually go and look at the numbers um the most recent numbers we have in the u.s there about there were seventy thousand the cdc data and then and when you take out the people who committed suicide that they know of, um, and then you take out the people who were murdered and the drug was in their system, and then that number is about 65,000. And then when you take out only the deaths where the person had an opioid in their system or suspected of had an opioid in their system, the number becomes 45,000. Uh, and then so when you start to really look at those numbers, most of those people had multiple drugs in their system. And then many of those people had tainted drug in their system. So they didn't know they had a drug uh, like fentanyl or an, an or an analog of fentanyl, which are more potent, meaning just smaller amounts are needed to produce an effect, including overdose, than something like heroin or morphine. And so those people just didn't know. It was uh, unintended because... They got drug that was adulterated uh, from the streets or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you consider who's doing the counting of these debts, like who's doing, who's filling out the death certificates, uh, medical examiners and coroners, medical examiners are physicians, and they typically have training in, in forensic pathology, whereas the other people who are doing this, uh, uh, filling out these death certificates are corners and the only requirement is a high school diploma um and in a place like california uh, the corners are largely the sheriffs uh and they have various conflicts of interest all of these people kind of have mm -hmm. conflicts of interests and then you think about some jurisdictions don't even test for all drugs or some don't test uh, on a regular basis or their testing is inconsistent. And then you think about people getting grants for the opioid crisis in some of these places. And so they are incentivized to make sure they include opioid on the death certificate. Um, and so I say all that to say that it's really hard to die from a single opioid unless you have something like fentanyl uh, and you thought it was something like heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and most of these people have multiple drugs in their system. So they don't know what drug was uh, at toxic levels because they don't measure for that. Right. Um, and, but yet they, the, the headlines basically say it's opioids. But they don't really know. Um, and so I don't trust that. And I don't believe that, mm -hmm. um, that this is an opioid problem because we've been we've had opioids around since humans have been around and other countries have opioids this is only a problem in north america mm. um so like in in spain they certainly do heroin and opioids you don't have this problem other places the, well they also have this thing called drug checking such that you can submit small samples of your substance make sure it's clean and then get a chemical printout yeah. of what, what's in it um, we have that technology here but we haven't uh, shared it with the public, uh, but we say we care about the opioid crisis. If we really did, then we make this available to people yeah. who use drugs. Uh, but uh, so I don't think it's it's opioids. I mean, I use opioids and um, have, um, but certainly don't worry about uh, things like overdose um, mm -hmm. uh, because I, I uh, first of all, I won't use drugs that I don't know what's in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you look though at. And some some parts of this story are, you know, you look at the behavior of uh, Purdue Pharma, and you look at the behavior of pharma in general. I mean, you look at even fucking Pfizer, two billion in fines in one case, and pharma is doing some shady shit, you know. Like, and then this is this is happening. The way that they push medications, the way that they position medications, the way that they, and and so I think people have also latched on to this one myopic window of the way that this one type of drug was was pushed and saying like, oh yeah, yeah, this was just an isolated thing with the opioids. I think it's kind of the thing with everything. Exactly. You know, but it's this has gotten a lot of attention. And and so, but people have kind of limited the window and scope to say, oh, Purdue is doing some shady things. Opioids have been, doctors have been doing that. Well, what about everything else? Like everything else, 
when it's a for-profit driven model where you have shareholders you're responsible for and you're really trying to maximize your profits, well, they're going to be giving things to people who probably don't really need them and in the first place, you know, and aren't educated about them and are taking them because like, oh, well, doctor says to take this, but they don't really know what they're doing. And I think that's like the key thing here is you just have this blind trust of the, you know, the doctors in the white coats and they say something and you do it and you don't really ha- know what's happening, whether it's a benzo or an opioid or whatever, the, whatever it is. And it's this kind of weird space where we're in right now where there's people making a lot of money off something and people taking things that they really don't fully understand. Yeah, you, you know, uh, you said a lot the impact there. Uh, on the one hand, um, you're absolutely right. This is um, how the pharmaceutical company operates. This is how they, they get down. Um, but one of the things that I try to do is try and stay focused, you know, on what my expertise are in order to help with this problem. Yeah. And so one of the things we've done in the country is that we've kind of distracted the country by saying, oh, look over here at Purdue Pharma. They look at what they did um, and they're responsible. Um, and, and, you know, I'd be the last person to want to uh, be defending a pharmaceutical company, but they're not. Uh, but that's what people have. That's the way we've looked at this because it's easy and it's stupid and it's simple. But that's mm-hmm. but that's not it. Uh, Purdue Pharma they uh, they fought to have oxycodone be um, scheduled at a higher level at three as opposed to two. Um, so that meant that it was uh, less sort of oversight uh, because mm-hmm. they said that oxycodone had less abuse potential than the other opioids. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, of course that's not that's not true, but it's an opioid it should just be scheduled just like another opioid so they paid a fine for that but beyond that that's where they pushed oxycodone just like they push other drugs um, yep. and just like other companies are pushing their drugs uh, now when we focus on them what we do is we set up the situation where um what about the people who actually need those medications mm-hmm. um now uh, uh, they can't get those medications because of our sort of focus on the evil pharmaceutical companies and that's not really the issue here the issue is they paid a fine they, i mean they 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 pay for what they did um, uh, in this case, but um, they're not responsible for like what's going on uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, much of what's going on is we're pulling the wool over the American public. You, you know, it's like there are people who die from overdose, and it would be helpful if we were able to say exactly why they died, mm-hmm. as opposed to just throwing it in this general sort of category. Um, and then that does nothing to make sure that we save people in the future. Or it does nothing to blame the pharmaceutical companies because people need their medications. Um, there are people who actually need those medications, even if we don't think that uh, we want them or need them. But, uh, yeah. but when we go after them, uh, I, I think that's a mistake, that w- what we've done. It also maybe distracts us from the socioeconomic conditions that are actually causing people to, I mean, I know opioids cross all kind of genders, classes, borders, races, all of these different things, but I think probably in general, we're easy to lump drug use into like this thing, oh, they're just doing drugs, but we're not looking at the conditions, the substrate, the the poverty, the kind of, everything that's happening, the discrimination, whatever that is at the base level that's actually driving people to the solution, you know, which is, you know, all, all use of these substances is an attempt to solve a problem, whether that problem is just I want to be happier or whether that problem is like I'm deeply in pain. It's an attempt to solve some problem, but we're not looking at the reason why people are having so many problems. We're just focusing on the solution that people are choosing, you know? Yeah, yeah so uh, let's be clear. The illicit drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry. Poor people couldn't support this alone. This is primarily a middle to upper class activity. That's a fact. Um, and poor people have their problems, of course. Um, but I think I think Keith Richards might have said it best. He's like, I don't have a drug problem. I have a police problem. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the poor people sort of issue. That yeah. issue is police, uh, housing, all of those kind of things are, I mean, uh, 
uh, housing in LA, for example, California is just going up. Um, that's a big problem. Um, and so when we put drugs in there, again, it's a distraction. So we don't focus on what the real issues are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but to be clear, uh, uh, illicit drug use is primarily a middle to upper class activity. Mm. When you look back at history and there was a time where opium was flourishing, you know, and there was opium dens and there was a lot of people, a lot of, you know, I don't know them personally, but seemingly intelligent people who commented on this kind of global degradation of society that allowing opium to be readily available was causing. When you look back at that, and I don't know if that's true or not, obviously I wasn't alive then and I don't know what their opinion was or if they had biases, but I've kind of taken that as an interesting thing of, you know, personally, I've never tried opium, but if I had the opportunity, if I'm just being honest, you know, I trust myself and I, you know, especially if I trusted that the dose and the medicine was clean or the drug was clean, I would fucking give it a go. You know, like I'm, I'm curious enough to, to want to see what that would be all about. But nonetheless, I've also been like, yeah, well, fuck, maybe it makes sense. Like maybe when opium was around, like people just couldn't resist. It was just too, it was too good. So uh, opium comes from the poppy, mm -hmm. and in the poppy we have morphine and codeine. You've had codeine. Yeah. If you've had codeine, then you know what opium is like. It's about the same thing. It's not a big deal. Uh, same as with opium. Opium is not as potent as morphine. Um, and so when people start blaming a substance for the degre degradation of a society, um, you can stop listening. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you, you know, we have alcohol in our society that's freely available, and it's certainly people can get in trouble with it, and people do get in trouble with it. Uh, but most of the people certainly don't get in, in, in trouble with it. The same is true with opium. The same is true with any drug. Um, and so when people have these sort of uh, stories, narratives about how some drug destroyed the society, um, you can stop listening because either uh, they think you're an idiot or they are an idiot because that's some bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting the way that we categorize certain things. Like, you know, this morning I took a little bit of green Malay kratom, right? And yeah. this acts in some ways similar to an opioid. Yeah. And it is an opioid. Yeah. It's just comes so it comes from, you know, comes from different trees that are in usually Southeast Asia. There's some green Malay, I think it's from Malaysia. There's Bali, there's different, there's Thailand. And then you can actually refine that, and then it, it um, <clears throat> can refine that into a, into a drug, and it's tramadol. And it's basically the act, as far as I understand, and I'm not too familiar, but that's like the active ingredient. So I'm familiar with kratom. And then again, if somebody has a tramadol, I'll be like, well, fucking, I'll have half of that, you know? And it's so I, I understand what I want to acknowledge is that I participate a little bit in in a bias and i think most of us do as well where it's like oh it's kratom it's from a, it's from a tree you know like all good and then like oh well tramadol it's basically from kratom so oh, that's fucking all good you know i'll have that and but then we'll so we'll be okay with ourselves and then but we'll say globally uh, well well them those the others the capital o others the, the others though i don't trust them and how fucking condescending to say like well, I'm good with this and, and I don't want anybody to fuck with me, but but I know best for them, you know? And I think if we really examine ourselves, we're all participating in this hypocrisy and this condescension in, in a little bit of a way. I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, because as you point out, like Kratom is from a plan, so forth. So too is morphine. So too is codeine. So too right. is op uh, opium, and and heroin is just a m small modification on the morphine uh, structure. So they're all cocaine. It's from a plant. They're all plant medicine. Um, but the stories that we've told around those drugs uh, is why we behave like we do in terms of our hypocrisy. Um, it, that that kind of brings me to like. Um, uh, patriotism in our country. You know, um, politicians, they wear like lapel, uh, flag lapels, right, to show their patriotism. Um, but then, of course, that's not patriotism. That's some superficial bullshit is what they do, <laughs> right? Uh, 
but we haven't had the national conversation to say like what it really is, what patriotism is. It's like you know, the founding sort of principles of the country is this thing of we are all we all have this sort of life, liberty, and pursuit. Those three birthrights that we're guaranteed. And so, like true patriotism, I was in the military. Uh, true patriotism is making sure that other people can enjoy those rights. Right, that's mm -hmm. patriotism. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have all the superficial bullshit that. Uh, parades its patriotism. And so I think one of the reasons we have the hypocrisy is because we haven't called people out for not taking care of the rights of other people. Mm. You know, uh, people think it's okay to say, like, I'm fighting for my rights. That's not patriotism. Patriotism is fighting for the rights of other people, making mm -hmm. sure they have those rights. That's what I did in the military. Mm -hmm. I was there uh, where the, um, uh, certain laws didn't apply to us because we were in the military protecting the rights of our citizens. And that's what patriotism is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that until we really focus on real patriotism, I think we're going to have this, this hypocrisy. Yeah. <clears throat> This uh, this general feeling that that people have is it's going to be. I think what we need is is more conversations that humanize everybody rather than a label. Like even drug user is like a, a dehumanization label. It puts somebody in a category that's beneath them, and we're doing this shit all the time. It's left, right, black, white, drug user, not drug user. We're always trying to just edge ourselves up or better than because our creed, our tribe, our ideal ideas, our choices are just better than somebody else, and we're just so eager to make that happen, and we make ourselves better and different when really, like, I think the conversations in the it's almost a, a consciousness or a spiritual understanding of recognizing the humanity of every single person and then and then seeing that being able to really see that and dissolve the boundaries of self and be like you are me living a different life let me understand your story and then i think it's almost like that's the necessary prerequisite to get through all of this layer of bullshit well I hope people can reach that higher plane that you said, like to be able to really empathize, put themselves in somebody else's shoes. But I'm not asking that much of people uh, simply because uh, um, I don't know uh, if we're going to achieve that large scale thing. All mm -hmm. I ask the people is like, I don't even really care what you call me, but just how you treat me. You know, if you you treat, because what we, we do in our country is then we focus on terminology more so than we focus on our actual treatment or the behaviors. And so I really care about how we treat each other. Fuck what you call me. I just care how you treat me. Long as you treat me um, with respect and dignity, I'm cool. You don't have to understand me. I don't not asking of that yeah. that of you. Um, I just need you to make sure that you treat people well. That yeah. that's it. Yeah. Amen to that. It seems to me that one of the challenges with let's say you snap our fingers, full scale legalization, or you know, we snap our fingers. The the problem is is that there's so many issues with our society, with our society, so much deep unhappiness, some so much deep loss of meaning, lack of connection, and ways in which our social bonds have been eradicated, the ways that which social media polarized, all of these things that are creating more and more suffering. Yes. You know, and then you you snap your fingers, say, okay, now all of these drugs are legal. Then it seems like that is something that people are going to reach to as a form of escapism at an exorbitant level and so i'm not saying that i'm not saying that maybe that would just be the thing that you would have to write out but it, it feels like in conjunction if you were going to do that and we had the magical divine power to do that you would also simultaneously have to say listen these are going to give you an escape from this very difficult societal environment that you're in and be mindful that you still like we all have a ton of work to do on our society it's not just about making more easy buttons it's like we got to do the hard like difficult stuff about improving communities and conversations and 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 you know the way the wealth distribution all of these different things 
access to you know healthy food across the board all of these different things need to happen and just general awareness and principles and as well as offering these different these different substances it seems like they have to kind of they don't have nothing has to happen but they would be good if they were both done in in conjunction yeah you know, we know how to multitask in our country. I mean, we we put a man on the moon. We uh, we uh, have better sort of science. All of those things are going on at the same time. You know, so it's not like we don't multitask in this country. So that's not an issue, and that's not an issue for me. Uh, and I don't think we just snap our fingers and legalize things like that. I think we do things in a way um, that are thoughtful. I mean, we can think about when Colorado and Washington legalized cannabis. Um, there were some people who was like that those societies are going to fall apart and they, they predicted all of these awful things that would happen. And now what we see is we see a proliferation across the country of legalizing cannabis uh, because those societies didn't fall apart. Uh, and, that, and actually they thrived. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't think that that's a real issue. I think that when we think like that, uh, again, that's our sort of the imprisoned mind, how we've been thinking about drugs in general. We would make sure we have appropriate unit dose that we sell. We mm -hmm. would make sure that we have the requirements in order to purchase. And they definitely don't do that in the cannabis dispensaries. There's some wildly inappropriate edibles. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> it's like a hundred milligram gummy bear. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? In a gummy bear? That's too much. Well, that's too much for you, but there are <laughs> there are there, 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 there are people who are tolerant. But this is part of the problem in our right. society. We think we know what's best for everyone, and, and we enough. don't, and, and we You're don't, right. And, You're right. and and so it's it's not up to me, you know, to, to tell people how to live their life. Yeah. That's not what I'm here for. You just they just need to put a big. This is a hundred milligrams. If you just want a gummy bear, this might be too much for you at this point. Yeah. You, it, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, living in the world as an ignorant person, you set yourself up for some p potential harm that somebody who is informed uh, uh, don't have to worry about. Yeah, that's going to always be there, right. and we act as if we have to. That all with drugs somehow it's different. It's not. It's the same thing. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I've learned a lot about science in my life. And then there are people who don't know as much about science. And so they might be subjected to, to some of the sort of negative consequences of not knowing. Mm -hmm. That's just life. And there are some things I don't know in life and other people know really well. And I'm subjected to the negative consequences for my ignorance. And, and, and that's just life. Mm. Uh, why are we acting like with drugs it's different yeah yeah let's talk about let's talk about cocaine yeah and uh so i've been to peru many times and when you go to the sacred valley the first thing they give you is you come off the plane is some coca leaves and you chew them because the altitude is high and and you're above twelve thousand feet i think and it helps. It's nice. And then you, you have coca tea everywhere in the hotels. It's coca tea, just the leaves in the tea, which contains cocaine, is an alkaloid in it. And this is just commonplace, right? And then, you know, then you get into cocaine, which then has, and I think pretty much everybody's like, yeah, yeah, if you go to Peru and they're giving you the coca leaves, you're not like, <gasps> how dare they, you know? And then, but then it becomes cocaine. And then I think because of a lot of the, ways in which cocaine has been used and with Pablo Escobar and the whole, you know, the violence associated with it and also the culture that's been associated with it. All right, there's some stigma there on cocaine. And we've also been at parties where people have just been doing a bunch of cocaine and they're like fucking hollow eyed. And I've seen that and been like, and it's not that I haven't ever done cocaine. I have, and it's not, it's not something that I enjoy. It makes, for me, it made me feel like cool for 10 minutes and then felt like shit for like a day. So it wasn't something good, but I don't know where it came from. They could have been scraping the fucking stuff they spray on the motel ceilings with the with the kernels and mix, grinding that up into a bag with a little bit of fucking meth and call it cocaine. I don't know what the fuck I was having, but ultimately it didn't work out for me. And I've also seen some other effects. So there's a stigma on that, but then there's an even more stigma on crack, 
right? Like that is now, uh oh, well, that, you know, and it's just like a joke and a meme and all of this stuff. So, from your perspective, like what is what is going on here from the coca leaf to the cocaine to the crack and how all of these things, it's just like, it just seems like layers and layers of stigma, some of which may be justified, some of which may be just fiction and nonsense. Yeah, um, uh, it's a lot to say there. Um, uh, aspirin comes from the willow bark. And so uh, you can uh, eat the bark or you can have the synthetic sort of aspirin or, mm -hmm. for a more uh, efficient sort of amount of aspirin to, to do the, uh, to relieve your pain, for example. Um, uh, like coca from the coca plant is not as concentrated as we get with like powder cocaine. Mm -hmm. um, so it's more efficient. Uh, um, and, and so um, uh, that's a sort of analogy we can work with. Um, mm -hmm. When people talk about drugs uh, in the way that you just described, you know, you have a limited sort of experience with yep. drugs. Um, think about uh, the first time you had sex, I don't know. Uh, many people have like not such a good good experience. So, no, or, right. I, I was. A, I know. I'll tell the story. I haven't ever told the story. First time I had sex, I went to use a condom and I couldn't quite get it right, and I was so nervous. And then I went soft, and then the condom wouldn't go on. And then I went to the bathroom to try to fix the situation, but that didn't work. And it was just so much pressure, and it was a, absolute. And I just came back, and I was like, sad. Right on. And it was a full right failure. On. Right on. You know. Right. That was it. That was it. That was my. I mean, it, it didn't even count. It was just, just, right a, just a failure. Right on. Uh, and so, but we have a lot of sort of uh, positive stories around sex in our society. So, <laughs> yeah. so you continue. I mean, and, yep, and, and, I forged right, through. I right. fucking, and I'm glad I did. Right, right. It's a good decision. Exactly. That's cocaine. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. That's that's cocaine. So, like, if if you get some really good Peruvian or uh, Colombian cocaine uh -huh. uh, in a situation that you know is good cocaine. And it's cool. You don't have to worry about all of the sort of uh, illegality issues around it. Um, you'll have a good time and you, and you won't be jonesing or anything. Once it's over, you go because you have a life and you have a family. You have all of these things that you have to do. You have to accomplish in life um, and you're a responsible person. Um, you, it'll be like that. Uh, you will handle it like you handle sex. Um, um, uh, but we have all these negative stories around cocaine uh, in our society, in part because uh, drug cartels, it's great drama. You know, mm. um, um, it's easy to write a movie or story about cocaine. You don't even have to develop the characters. Uh, you use the name Pablo Escobar. In Americans' mind, his name conjures up uh, typically a negative sort of image. You know, obviously, Pablo Escobar was a far more complicated person than that. And there mm. are millions of people who loved Pablo Escobar for a variety of reasons. Uh, but in but when you're writing a movie about Pablo Escobar, you you have this sort of unidimensional person, which he's not, he wasn't, um, and no one is. And, and, and so right there starts the problem about how we think about drugs mm -hmm. in this adolescent way that we don't think about anything else in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're sitting here talking to me. I certainly have had all of these drugs in all of these countries. Um, and yet, um, I had a book come out this year, uh, actually two books, um, a textbook, I revised it, um, and other sort of science papers. I do all of these things. I have a family. Uh, I have children to take care. Of. I have people depending on me. Uh, I, those things are first. Um, but I also have ha used all of these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, that's most people who use these drugs. Yeah. Uh, but they're in the closet uh, about it because it's just easier not to have people look at you as if um, you're a junkie or something. I don't know, whatever yeah, the negative mm -hmm. stereotypes are. Yeah, undependable, right in the precipice whatever. of some downward yeah. slide and needing needing someone to come save you before you exactly. fall into the exactly. yeah, all of these all of these different stories that we have. Though one thing that I've I've become more sensitive to is the energy of a thing. And this is for me in my own Absolutely. exploration and spiritual path, like understanding that even food, you know, food that I've grown in my garden, 
look, if you break it down and I take it to a scientist and it's going to be the same lettuce that I probably get at the organic you know, supermarket, they're not going to find any differences in the lettuce. But there's something about me cultivating that garden and me eating that lettuce that I fucking feel different. I just do. You yeah, know? that's real. That's real. And I think with these with these drugs, there is some some ways in which some drugs have accumulated good energy people who've cultivated something from lovingly from land and then offered it and brought their energy and then there's other ways where it's gone through different hands mexican cartels or whatever and, and and it's gotten to a place where the energy associated with it because of all of the laws obviously that's created all of the violence and created all of that the energy can be actually something that can be difficult beyond just the substance itself would you would you kind of agree with that, that there's... I, I certainly agree with you about the food where you're food but like when we're talking about now drugs coming from organizations the uh, uh, cartels or such um, uh, they oftentimes may cut their drugs in order to stretch their products so they add other mm -hmm. chemicals so it's not only just energy is what you're saying it's also it's also chemical adulteration oh absolutely uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there there is a lot of that that goes on in the illicit trade, and that's the major concern with the illicit trade. It's these adulterants that people put in. These sometimes the adulterants are harmless, and other times uh, they're not so harmless. So uh, that uh, I worry about the real chemicals that actually right. go into right. it. Now, but you still the energy thing that you you explain. Uh, if you, for example, if you grow your own opioids, your opioid, your um, poppies, yeah. right? Uh, versus getting your opioids from somewhere else, you may actually feel a lot better about it, uh, and then therefore you may have a better time when you do your opioid. Mm -hmm. That's very real. That's like set and setting. That's your mindset mm -hmm. beforehand. And that has that plays a huge role in drug effects, and so I think um, I think there's some to that. I think that's very important. Yeah, I mean, I could hypothesize going to, um, you know, opium poppies. They grow in Afghanistan, obviously, yep. and so imagine going to like a beautiful Afghani family's house, and I'm just creating this fantasy, you know. Uh, pastoral scene right where i go there and we have some tea and we you know they have some food and then they go out and in the back they have their opium they have their opium poppies and and the matron of the house is like you know i've prepared this you know from our poppies and i'm out there and i'm touching the leaves and then then we have this little thing they have a beautiful beautiful pipe and we smoke it i can imagine that as like wow that sounds like a really beautiful experience whereas then you think of you think of heroin, you know, in the in the city or in the something like that, and then it's like, oh no, that's like, oh never. But it, it is it is interesting, and some part of it is real, and some part of it is story, and some part. But I think the thing is, until we pierce the veil of all of our judgment and all of these stories, we don't know what's really real and what we really feel about the substance itself, and what is just the way that it's been projected, the way that it's been told the way that that story has been told yeah uh yeah by the way you can, you can grow some good opium poppies in wyoming for example <laughs> uh it's mountainous high altitude dry air perfect place to, to yeah. uh, grow some nice poppies um uh, but um you know i don't have as much of those kind of sort of uh negative images about drugs in my head anymore, you know, yeah, after being yeah. studying this for like 30 years. So it's kind of hard for me to even understand why Americans insist upon being adolescents about drugs. Um, um, I mean, I think about this like, you know, you have a glass of wine with your significant other. I think about um, doing heroin uh, with my wife or something uh, uh, and, having a good evening um a chilled evening walking around a nice city and checking out um the people the city the sights um just like having a glass of wine the same kind of thing um what kind of mindset you want to be in for the evening um is it this or is it that um 
being an expert in pharmacology, you have, you know how to uh, make sure you have the right mindset. Mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Is there, are there any drugs that you'd be like, now that one, no. Like is it fentanyl? Is like, is there, is there one, is there someone, is there something where you draw the line and you say, yeah, that thing, like fuck that thing? Um, of course, I mean, there. I guess in the 80s, uh, uh, out west here, or actually back east too, there were, people were trying to make uh, synthetic Demerol and then they made, uh, inadvertently made something called MPTP, um, and in which the body converts to MPP plus, and that drug uh, selectively kills dopamine cells. I mean, and so obviously, uh, I don't think people should take that drug. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but people are not seeking that drug. People are seeking things like uh, morphine, opium, um, heroin, um, uh, cocaine. The drugs that people are seeking, uh, no, I, I think uh, MDMA or whatever they're seeking, typically, what they're typically seeking, um, I think we can teach people how to do these things safely and have a good time. Yeah. Um, so um, obviously I don't want people to hurt themselves. Sure. I mean, nicotine is one of the more toxic chemicals that we have, um, but used in appropriate doses, it could be helpful. And depending on the delivery mechanism. That's well. right. could yeah. be helpful. For those people who, you know, and I, for those people who don't understand what a heroin experience feels like, like what is it? What does it feel like to do heroin? Like what is what is that feeling? I mean, if people have taken something like an ox, um, I don't know, a Percocet, yeah, uh, Tylenol three, um, ever had any dental work and had, and then they had some pills prescribed afterwards. That's it. I mean, kratom. Um, Kratom doesn't get you quite there, um, uh, but that's, you're approaching, it's an opioid-like feeling. That, so you just kind of feel free, you feel, uh, like, what are, the, what are the adjectives that you would use to describe it? Yeah. Euphoric? I, yeah, I think about, like, uh, um, happy, um, uh, unbothered. Um, uh, in some cases, magnanimous. Uh, think, think about the uh, the sort of adjectives that people use to describe activities that they really like to engage in. Mm -hmm. Those kind of same sort of things. And, and then you know, people say, "I feel happy. I feel less anxiety. I feel uh, more forgiving. I feel all of these kind of things," um, which are good. And so it's like, well, why would you want to? prevent other people from feeling the same thing with their activity yeah um you got a lot of people who must sling a lot of hate at you i think though i think the whole philippine government is mad at you right? like you're in persona non grata in the philippines entirely um is that is that something that's challenging for you does that does that grate on you does that wear on you having people who uh, are constantly attacking you uh, you know i don't really know the, the the attack maybe online but you know like it's lovely being back in person now yeah sure because uh, now people have to like see you face to face and you, you they are less likely to do stuff like that but online there are some people but oftentimes the people who have the hate are really just ignorant and yeah. um and i you know i can't provide all of their education for them. I mean, some of them will get here eventually, mm -hmm. uh, and then others may never get here. But there is far much more love because people are freed. Um, you know, there are a lot of drug users who are in the closet and know what I'm saying to be true, mm -hmm. which is that this isn't groundbreaking or earth shattering. This is simple. Um, and they know this. And so they, so I get a lot more love, um, than hate. And not only that too, it's like, um, it's the right thing to do. You like, I talked about being a patriot, you know, mm -hmm. um, I know what it means, what it, what it really means to take care of other people's rights. And that's mm -hmm. all I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. People should have the right to live their life like they want. 
in fact, that's the original promise of the country. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody is showing hate to me, they don't understand what it means to be an American. And you can extend that, you know, universally in all of these different categories. And I think that's a beautiful way to redefine patriotism. And uh, so let's be fucking patriots. That's it. Let's do it. Thank you so much for coming on, man. This is a really illuminating conversation, and I'm sure it opened a lot of people's minds as it, as it opened my mind to just the bias, the stories, the way that we see things, and just have that open mind to question these things that we take. Just We just take, and we just receive those, and we just repeat those over and over again until someone like yourself is like, hey, 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 hold up, wait a minute, let's take a look at this. And then if we have the flexibility of thought, and be like, oh, shit. Let's take another look. So so thank you so much for the work that you do and uh, for sharing that wisdom on the show today. Thank you for having me, man. Of course. And uh, your books and, and other places people can find more of what you do? Drug use for grownups. It's everywhere. Um, go out, support me, show the love so I can uh, continue saying what I say. <laughs> Beautiful. Have a great talk today. Meet Delic, man. Thank you, man. Sure. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the podcast with Dr. Carl Hart. As always, it's really helpful if you leave a review or subscribe to the podcast wherever podcasts are served. I'll see you next week.